Hello there. You hear me? My name is Mickey Klink. I work here at this church. I'm a member for almost seven years now. Thank you for coming. Today we talk about the mark of the beast. You ready for that? Here we go. Pat, you ready? All right, just check it. I literally just flew in late last night from Mesa, Arizona, where it was 99 degrees when I got on the plane. Yeah, li- leave it there. And I, I, was, I was joking with the congregation. I'm like, I gave an illustration of snow, and I'm like, wait a second, you guys even know what snow is here? It's amazing how many transplants are in Arizona, though, from like all over the Midwest and stuff. I mean, there's just a ton of people there. But they send you their greetings. It's an EFCA church, Red Mountain Community Church in Mesa, which is, what is it, like 20 minutes or 25 minutes outside of Phoenix? I mean, from the airport, it was like 20 minutes or something. It really wasn't that far. But uh, it, was, it was good to be there. It's interesting to hear all the issues happening over things like what our church is facing regarding responses to politics. Um, huge division in that church over that. Uh, responses to masks. Huge division in the church over that. And, and it's kind of like misery loves company because it's like you just hear what's going on in that church and it's like, well, that sounds like every other church I know as well. Uh, you're, they're just fighting over these things. What about masks? What about social distancing? How do we respond to what the governor or county puts into place? I mean, all of those conflicts are happening. To be honest with you, it's sad to think of how this has killed churches and how it's exhausted pastors. Because this, the senior, he's, the senior pastor there was a guy that I've known for many years, and so I, I went on Friday night, because I talked to their staff and elders on Friday afternoon. I, I literally had to get up at 3 a.m. on Friday to get to the airport on time, and then I taught all afternoon to their staff and elders, had dinner with the senior pastor and his wife. Literally, I was playing Legos with his youngest son, which was awesome, actually. I wish my kids would get back into Legos. Uh, but just sitting there with him, his, the, the senior pastor and wife, and again, they can talk to me because I'm not like a church member, and I'm like, how are you doing? And he's literally holding back tears. He has been slaughtered by his congregation. No matter what decision they make, he gets attacked, and he's slaughtered, and he's exhausted. I'm just like, how many shepherds feel that way? Just so exhausted. And it's just sad, because this isn't coming from the outside. This, is, this isn't just like the community is attacking them. This is his own people over issues related primarily to political applications regarding procedures or things like that. I mean, it's literally over that. And that church is not alone. And it's sometimes just, it's just, it's just helpful to, to realize that because we can have those exact same kind of issues here. We do. Um, but, but the reality is every church is just getting slaughtered. And it's, they're slaughtering themselves. This isn't an outside attack. This isn't some kind of religious persecution. This, this, is, this is how severe it's kind of gotten. And it was just sad. For me, to, just to be with them, I, I spoke on yesterday morning for three hours on the church. I mean, they invited me to come out because they know this book I wrote called The Local Church coming out in October, and I basically gave them three hours of that book yesterday um, and just talked about the local church, which they thought was helpful in light of all that's happened with COVID. Like, is church important? Should you do online church? What is church membership? What's the purpose of the local church? Uh, is physically gathering significant? And I just basically presented, in my book, I asked five questions, I answered five questions, and I just spent three hours giving them kind of the highlights of that. And then I sent them greetings from our church here. They, in the, you know, they, they're like, is there still snow there? I mean, that's crazy. Who would live in the Midwest? I'm like, man, that's where Jesus would have lived. But, uh, like, why'd you ever leave California? Like, I was glad to leave California. But uh, they wanted me to send you greetings from their elder board and staff. It's a sweet church. And to think that they're worshiping the same Lord we are this morning is pretty cool. Well, let me pray as we jump into one of the most uh, arguably scary topics, one of the most misunderstood uh, and arguably relevant topics that we could address in this class. Let's pray. Father, 
Help us this morning as we wrestle with the topic of the Mark of the Beast. Thank you for Red Mountain Community Church. Thank you for Kyle and Bob and Peter and all those staff and elders. Um, I pray that you bless them as they minister today. Help their church to exhibit the kind of missional focus and brotherly and sisterly love that you command all of us to exhibit and help our church to do the same. Guide us as we wrestle with the interpretive questions of the book of Revelation and specifically the Mark of the Beast and 666 and those kind of things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, all I'm giving you is a quick review and then I'm going to jump into the test case of Revelation chapter 13. That's all I'm going to do. I gave you last week three approaches to Revelation. One of those called the preterist, you can just literally ignore, it's dead wrong. Right? It argues that everything in Revelation is talking about something in the past. That's the view that would be held at all the non-confessional, non-theological, arguably non-believing academic institutions. Right? So that view is the academic view that Revelation is talking about what happened around the destruction of Jerusalem, the slaughter of Paul and Peter, the killing of the apostles, etc. And that by the time the destruction of the temple happened, in the 60, 66 AD, Revelation is only writing about that. We believe that Revelation is actually talking about something uh, different. And, and the other two approaches is that, not past, but the other two is it's talking about something strongly future or strongly present. I would argue it's talking about something strongly present. That's the difference, right? Dear brothers and sisters, disagree on this. And I think you can understand why. This is a really hard book. And I already gave you the, the Aaron Rodgers lecture. Man, I don't know if he's going to be with the Packers for much longer. As a Bear fan, I really wouldn't mind that. But that's another issue. But I gave the Aaron Rodgers talk, hey, relax. Like, seriously, relax. This book was actually meant to encourage us to strengthen us. And get this, this is the part we don't always get. It was actually written to challenge us. Like, it was, it was supposed to smack us around. I can only imagine, as I was thinking about what that church is going through regarding some of the political division, I can just imagine that Jesus Christ, through the book of Revelation, would say, what do you think the fight is? Like, you really think that's the fight? Seriously? A, a piece of cloth over your face that nobody wants to wear? That's the fight? You're not gathering with the church over a piece of cloth? Seriously? Like, Jesus, Jesus would be... be Flipping tables in that moment. He really would. So we don't want to miss that there's, the, we love, man, the Bible, we love to read the Bible as if it's for the brokenhearted. And a lot of the Bible, arguably half of it, is actually for the hard-hearted. And Revelation is one of those. Like it is, it is split between speaking to the brokenhearted, those who fear what is to come and what they're facing now, and it is written to the hard-hearted, those who are literally not acknowledging true and full allegiance to Jesus Christ. And, and you read the beginning of Revelation when he writes to the seven churches. I mean, most of that just, I mean, he gives a little bit of us to the brokenhearted, and then he just starts smacking them around. And I, I, I just, you read all of those letters to the seven churches, and he has some hard words to say. And you and I just need to know, that's not just that church over there. That would be our church. Like, what would he say to us? Like, what kind of words would he say? You're going you're to fight over that? You're, you're going to say that to your brother or sister? Seriously? Who do you think you are? I'll spit you out. So those kind of things are important. Now, last time I gave a little bit more detail about these two approaches. Really, the predictive approach, again, keywords, code, and future, and the pastoral prophetic approach, keywords, lens, and present. That's just really important. Those are important categories. The predictive approach is the approach held by what's called dispensational theology. The, the pastoral prophetic approach is the approach held by what's called covenant theology. Those two have, have, for 150 years, been debated. They, they have been. And now in evangelicalism, you, you could almost say it's, it could be close to split 50-50. Uh, there's always been weird readings of Revelation about the future, eschatology. There's always been that. But generally, dispensational theology is somewhere around 150 years old. Covenant theology 
is arguably the primary way the Bible's been read since the beginning. That doesn't mean there haven't been people that have read with eschatological emphases. There have been from day one. But the point is, that, that's just an important distinction. I shared with you, how really, each of those, if I could summarize it, each of those approaches, dispensational theology and covenant theology, if you don't know those words, that's okay, but those are actually, for being catechized, those are good words to know. Dispensational theology and covenant theology tell a slightly different version of the biblical story. I tried to give you glimpses of that, like, is Abraham is what God's doing with Abraham for the nation of Israel, or is what God's doing with Abraham for all God's people? If it's mainly for the nation of Israel, then you can guess what? There's some big stuff with Israel still to come. If it's mainly for all God's people, then what the church is doing is basically fulfilling most of what Abraham did. So you can kind of tell which biblical version of the story you hold on to depending upon how much you think there's significance for Israel still. That's probably the best litmus test or or rule of thumb. If you have been raised told there's a huge, significant thing for the nation of Israel still in the future, over against all the other nations, by the way, but specifically the nation of Israel, then you've probably been raised with a dispensational theology. And I said last time, that's probably most of us. Like, most of us were raised that way in our tradition. If you were raised in a Presbyterian tradition, that is not what you heard. It's mainly an evangelical, and, and, and this is all, this is interesting and sometimes scary, it's almost entirely in America. Like, why? Why in America? The guy that started dispensational theology was actually British, but the, Brits, the British Baptists and Anglicans and Presbyterians, they didn't accept it. He came to America, and boom, Schofield reference Bible, and D.L. Moody. And then you throw in Billy Graham and it's sold. I mean, that's really what it is. You, you put those three together and, and, and it's there. It, it skyrocketed. And most of us were raised and baptized in that kind of theology. Now, if you want, I'm not going to spend more time on this now. Because a few people have come up to me and said, help me with it. I don't even understand these two different versions of the story. I- I'm happy in our Q&A week six to actually flesh those out. Like, I'll, I'll take a section of that and say, let me tell you in 15 minutes the different story dispensational theology has from Genesis to Revelation versus covenant theology. I think that might be helpful. Those are good categories. It might be significant enough that we even do a, a, a separate growth hour on that. I think it's that important. Again, remember, the danger of our church, like every other church, is that people are really good at noticing individual trees, and they clearly cannot see the whole forest. And what you do with the biblical story determines your ultimate theology. What you do with Genesis 12 and the thrust of the biblical story determines whether you're a paedo-baptist or a credo-baptist, whether you're pre-mill or all-mill. I mean, it's all connected. What the story is pointing to and leading to determines how you do those things. And I felt like my education in church was horrific, no offense to First Free, but I don't think any church was doing well at that. I didn't learn the big picture. In fact, I went to seminary and didn't learn the big picture. It wasn't until my supervisor says, have you, do you not know anything? When I was in grade like, I guess not. And he forced me, taught me the big picture. And I'm like, why did nobody in my own tradition do this? Why has an Anglican got to be the one to teach me that? And yet I'm not Anglican. Nor did I, and several, here's what scared me. You know what these academics do? The guys like me, they, they leave their evangelical world where they have been told, focus on the heart, not the brain. They get instruction by an Anglican, and guess what they become? Anglican. I've had numerous people I say would say, why are you still with the evangelical free church of America? I said, because that's my people, number one. But number two, I think that is a biblical understanding of God's word and the world. But we got to do a better job at that. And I don't think it just starts in the seminary, so they got to do a better job too. I think it can happen here. That's why I bring that up. I know for some it's like, whoa, I don't know what you're talking about. Well, it's not your fault. It's your pastor's faults. It's not just their fault. It's probably their pastor's fault. It's the seminary's fault. It's about time we change that. I said the same thing to the staff and elders at Red Mountain Community Church the other day, yes, Friday afternoon, I said the exact same thing, and they're like, we, don't, we just don't even know where to start. I said, well, we got to work on that. Let's, let's change that, because it's going to take a generation or two. Lord willing, your grandkids, born and raised in the church, catechized, will know God's word and biblical theology and the biblical categories and the life of the mind more than arguably we did. That's the goal.
And the Lord always redeems and works in those ways. The big thing to note is if you hold to the predictive approach, you read Genesis like a code. If you hold to the pastoral prophetic approach, you read it like a lens. Now think of it this way. When it comes to the mark of the beast then, what do you think you're looking for? If you read it like a code, you're looking for an item. I mean, that's the, that's the, I'm giving you the big difference before we read the text. If you read it like a code, you're looking for an item. Like, what is the mark of the beast? Like, is it vaccines? Is it credit card numbers? How about social security numbers? Is it going to be on my, my wrist and forehead? Is it going to be the number 666? Six? Like, you're looking for a physical, viewable with the eyes mark that's going to be put on. And you're like constantly checking the Bible and the newspaper to see which one it is. That's the code approach, right? One-to-one -one correspondence, crystal ball, and it causes fear. If you read it with the lens approach, which is how I read it, again, I could be wrong. Hear that. There's got to be some intellectual humility in the church because this is God's word, not our word. But if you read it like the lens approach, you're actually not even thinking it's even a, a, a legitimate, literal item. You're seeing not item, but insight. See the difference there? It's giving you insight. Mark, the same Greek word for mark, can mean pattern, can mean habit. The habit of the beast. So someone who has the habit of the beast lives a certain way. Do you see the difference? So which one is it? You might be looking for something with technology and and physical markings, when in reality, it's a lifestyle being talked about. That's the seal of the beast. A life in worship to God, or a life in worship to the anti-God. That's really what this is talking about. Let's look at Revelation 13. I'm going to read verses 1 to 2, and then I'm going to skip to a... Or, 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 I'm going to read all the way, really, through 1 through 18. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And, the, and that beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet, remember, this is, this is apocalyptic genre. It's meant for you to experience it, not just translate. You know what you and I are tempted to do? We're all tempted to read it like a code. You're translating. Stop translating. Just imagine seeing it. What, is it, what insight is it giving you? The beast was like a leopard, its feet like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And, it, and to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed." It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast. And that interesting? It says allowed, by the way. Just note that. Like it's, There's a big leash on this dude. Just, just, that, that's a key word. So that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Suffering, persecution, slaughter of those who worship something else. Now verses 16 to 18 are, are, are the ones that are most focalized on what we're going to talk about today. And it causes all, both great and small, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has, has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Now this is, if you're doing family devotions with your kids, you can imagine the questions coming out of this. You're just like, hey, let's just go to dessert right away. Let's talk about the beast. John sees a beast rising out of the sea, summoned by the dragon on the seashore, representing the kingdom of the world, which preys on its citizens. Now remember, 
Revelation is retelling and using the language of the Old Testament story. That's one thing to know. So if we're, if we're just thinking this as a futuristic recording, like it's a video recording something in the future, it's going to be confusing for us because it's filled with images. The characters, the people that Revelation uses to tell his story have already been mentioned in the Old Testament, right? So the, the, so the book of Revelation is using images and characters God has already been describing in the Old Testament and putting them in a new narrative to describe something different. So when you hear about this beast and the dragon, it's something you've already heard about. It's in Daniel. Daniel chapter 7 talks about four kingdoms. And again, it's, so, it's real tempting for us to think, like we think, well, maybe it's Iran and Iraq. Like we, again, that's what the code approach does. Rather than seeing four kingdoms as the four directions of the world, north, south, east, west, and just covering all human kingdoms. See that? So which one is it? You see the difference? Are you looking for four specific kingdoms? I think it's Canada. Like, is that what you're looking for? Or are you just seeing that that's symbolic imagery for in every direction there are people who don't follow Christ? The anti-kingdom. There's the kingdom of God, and get this, every other human kingdom is ultimately against God. The beast, like the dragon, parodies Christ, right? You know what parody means? He, he, he acts like Christ. He, 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 he tries to take the place of Christ. He wants your allegiance. He demands allegiance owed to Christ alone. This beast and kingdom applies to every manifestation of evil in all governments throughout history. Yes, even America. That's just hard for us to see because we, we have just been so ingrained to wed our Christianity with our nation. Yet the book of, here's where the, the prophetic part of Revelation comes in. Revelation would say, hey, I, you got, a, you got a pledge of allegiance to your country, and, and, and that you should be serving your country. You should care for your country. That's a big deal. But let me ask you something, Christian. When you hear the word allegiance, do you cringe just a little bit? Because when you read the story of Revelation, what do the human kingdoms want you to do? Pledge allegiance. Now, does that mean we shouldn't pledge allegiance? No. Not necessarily. But notice how we rarely hear Christians ever try to disassociate those two things. Again, that doesn't mean, like the Bible would tell you to love your country. It would tell you to say, you would hope Christians would be the best Americans around. But they always know their true north. They always know their true home. So again, think of this with me, right? If, if you're hearing the warning of revelation, how are you and I making sure, get this, if I can use a phrase I've used before, that we make the kingdom great again? Or kingdom first. That's tempting, isn't it? And I'm not even talking about make America great again or America first. That might be a policy in relation to other human kingdoms that we would think would be the best for human flourishing for our country. You can totally adopt that policy. You can totally have that kind of vision for human politics and still want to make the kingdom great again. So I'm not making that a political decision in regard to policy decisions, like whether we should go to war or return our troops or what do we do with money for other countries or how do we think about immigration, right? I, it, it doesn't bump into that at all. There's just something in us that should say, even if as an American I have a particular policy for the best interests of America, I still know that I'm an alien here. But I don't think we've done well at that, and we've got T-shirts and signs that wed those two together all the time. I stand for the flag. I kneel for the cross. And I, I hear that, and I understand Colin Kaepernick is not a friend of many, right? But all I want to know is this. Forget the standing and the kneeling. Who in their right mind would want to put the cross and the flag in the same place? You would at least hope a Christian would say, uh, I just don't like those things connected that close. Yet, you could still, please hear this, this is why I'm saying it's a different kind of politic. You could still be absolutely in disagreement with Colin Kaepernick for kneeling and say he should stand for the flag. You can hold that all day long. That's a different issue. The issue I'm not saying is how you deal as an American, it's how you deal as a Christian. There's got to be some prophetic slap to say, 
Brothers and sisters, have we wedded two things that don't belong together? In fact, I would argue, and I think the Bible would make this case, if you are showing true allegiance to King Jesus, you will actually be a better American contributor. You can have, you could have any policy you want on standing and kneeling for flags, on immigration, irrespective. But we have literally adopted Bible language for our particular nation. And the moment that happens, you can just see the book of Revelation looking at you like, what are you doing? What country are you from? Where is your allegiance? Yet we have been, get this, so catechized, probably more by our nation than by our church, that when we think of ourselves, we think of ourselves primarily as Americans. And do you know what Revelation is going to want you to do? Again, whatever your politics. Like they could, you could have a variety of politics and fit this. Revelation would say, where's your allegiance first? Who's your king? What's your home country? Okay, good. Now go be the best citizen you can be. Come up with the best policies for this country. Bring back truth about what is God and what is gender and what is sexuality. What is Sure, go for it. Yeah, they need that. They, it's totally distorted. Like, give them all that. Vote for those things. They're slaughtering babies. It is a shame in our nation that that is happening. Fight that stuff big time, but where's your allegiance? Just making sure you know that. Who do you love? Just check that. Because our kids, five days a week, are swearing allegiance to a country. How many days a week do they swear allegiance to King Jesus? So who have they been catechized to love the most? And their parents are fighting all day long over NFL football and Colin Kaepernick because don't you tread on that, man. I'm, I'm. How much do they hear their devotional life for the kingdom? Do they even know what the kingdom of God is? What's the kingdom of God? Like that, if you were to summarize Jesus' sermons over all four Gospels, it would be the kingdom of God. Yet, what do we talk about all the time? So I, I warned you, Revelation is not coming in like, I, I, want to, I know you're scared. Here's a blankie and some hot chocolate. Everything's going to be okay. There's some of that. But then there's, I know you're scared. Buck up. <laughs> and I don't know what you think you're doing, but that allegiance division that you have, you are worshiping human kingdoms that are trying to get you to worship them. And they will manifest themselves as neutral and good. And get this, every human kingdom, by the end of the biblical story, will crush the, seek to crush the church. You understand that, right? Not just Iraq and Iran, not just Saudi Arabia, every human kingdom every human kingdom, will try to crush Christ. They will want their own king. And Christians, unless they see a different kingdom, will completely follow. This beast's kingdom applies to every manifestation of evil in all governments throughout history, leading to the final conflict to come at the end. People worship the beast, believing he cannot be resisted or overcome. He's a winner. He's successful. He's powerful. The world loves champions. The beast is full of himself, uttering blasphemous words against God. The beast is allowed by God, according to these verses, to exercise his authority for 42 months. Some think that's a little 3.5 years. I was talking to an elder at this church who literally is what's called holds to the, the mid Trib pre-wrath rapture. If you don't know what that is, I don't know if he did either, but he held he'll do it. And they just they literally think that the three the 42 months is like a literal 42 months, three and a half years. Most Christians throughout time have seen that as the time between the first and second coming. Meaning right now. You see that? If it's a code, then you're waiting for some three and a half year period in the future to come. Is this the tribulation or not? But if it's now, then literally the beast and the dragon are at work now. It has been for 2,000 years, trying to get your allegiance to something else. You, by the way, do you see the risk of not covering Revelation in churches because we're all too scared of it? 
The beast hates anything and anyone devoted to the one true and living God and would love, would love to get your allegiance to go somewhere else other than Christ. Anything, anything, anything. Make it sports, make it money, make it physical pleasure. Anything, not Jesus. And he'll give it to you. He'll give it to you. One of the, one of the, one of the curses of America is that we're so stinking wealthy. Have it, have your liberty, have your money, have your prosperity, and forget about Jesus. Forget about it. Think that he's just an app that gives you blessing. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Think, make, your, make your nation the kingdom. That's a good idea. Make your nation this Christian thing. That's it, right? Look for a leader among the politicians. That's a good idea. Perfect, gotcha. And then fight over it. Split your churches. Slaughter your pastors. Quit your churches. Perfect. Worship of the beast. Let me talk about that. The beast's authority and rule spark fear and admiration in those dwelling on the earth, and they worship the beast. Those who give their allegiance to the beast demonstrate they do not belong to the one true God. Believers are told to prepare themselves for persecution and death. How many sermons have you heard about that growing up over the years? They are called, this is a calling, every Christian. They are called to remain faithful to God no matter the difficulties at hand. There are actually two beasts according to Revelation 13. One represents secular power and the other represents secular priesthood. Uh, that is, there's the Antichrist and the Antichurch. The language of an image of the beast is Revelation's symbolic way of speaking about worship. To make an image of something is to worship it. Just as being made in the image of God means we are made to worship him. It's less a form and more a function. Now let me talk about the mark of the beast. A code approach assumes the mark is physical, like a physical thing. And again, you could read Revelation 13 to see that. Like It's even describing your right hand and your forehead. Now again, physically, you're, like you're expecting something like that, right? I mean, it's on the arm or on the forehead. Again, those things are also the right hand, symbolizes your authority and your power. And the forehead symbolizes, your, well, you could say the hand is the power and the head is authority, right? They're symbolic of your personhood. But again, that's the lens approach. Every guest so far on the Mark of the Beast, and let me just tell you there have been, I calculated over 1,500 in the last 2,000 years. Every guest so far has been, guess what? Wrong. Now think about that for a second. We've had over 1,500 guesses in the history of the Christian church that can be calculated, and how many of those are accurate? We're O for 1,500. That's like some of our Cubs batters, to be honest with you. Every guess so far has been wrong. Usually some institute, institution is picked, a country is picked, or a person is picked. About the, and usually, to be honest with you, the interpreter is already a bit suspicious. Let me give you some examples. Social security numbers in the 1930s. Christians were staying away from Social Security numbers. Have any stayed away? I mean, do all, any of you have not have Social Security numbers because of your convictions of the mark of the beast? I doubt it. How about 1950s? Three-digit area codes. Mark of the beast. Big meetings in churches. Again, probably most of us don't remember those things, but it was a big deal. Magazines, Christian magazines, newsletters, prophecy conference. Don't get it. We have, now we have 815 t-shirts. They're all the mark of the beast. <laughs> Credit cards in the 1970s. Barcodes in the 1980s. In the 1990s with internet and IP addresses. And more recently with radio frequency identification, RFID, which is way beyond my pay grade, whatever that is. And now vaccines, that there's a chip of some sort. Again, that's all code. It's looking for an item. I would like to argue 
the mark of the beast is insight into worship. A lens approach realizes that the Greek word translated as mark is using Roman imagery. It's talking from the context of the first century, using the biblical story to talk about something in Rome. The mark of something, an imprint, a proof, a seal of approval. Not an item, but an insight. The mark symbolizes the emperor's seal. Again, it was the kingdom of God versus the kingdoms of men. And what was the main kingdom of men in that time? Rome. By the 5th century, Augustine wrote one of the most important books that probably most Christians have never read, called The City of God. And what did he do? He compared the city of God, God's kingdom, versus the city of men, human kingdoms. The Roman seal enforces the, the idea, metaphorical, symbolic idea, that the mark alludes to the political and economic power of human kingdoms. It's kind of like the seal of approval. You know there was a seal, Good Housekeeping magazine started this thing years ago with a seal, a good housekeeping seal. And if a product had that seal, then guess what? They were approved. So this is all, this is a real quick binary. It's not, a, it's not an item, it's a binary. You're either approved by Christ showing your worship and allegiance to him, or you're approved by the Antichrist showing your authority and worship of them and human kingdoms. Which way are you sealed? So you're not actually looking for an item in the newspaper. You're not looking outside yourself. You're looking at your own allegiance. That's why Paul reminds the believers that they've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. Do you hear that? That's the Mark language. So you, if you are a believer, guess what? You already have a mark. You already have the mark, brothers and sisters. Now you hear this. And what is that mark? It's the Holy Spirit who has sealed you. And then you're worried about something that might go on your forehead or your credit cards and radio frequency identification and vaccines. Has it anything to do with that? The vaccines, I, I get the disagreement in politics, but viewed in a healthy way is simply part of God's common grace. It's just common grace, like, like penicillin or doctors who are trained in, in medicine or, or elevators, right, or stretchers or you name it. It's just called common grace, and that's been made the mark of the beast. This does not mean that a seal wouldn't be visible. I think, or a mark wouldn't be visible, but I think the visibility is that it's manifested by a different allegiance, behavior that reflects the beast, and worship of the beast, and alternate kingdoms. Again, when you hear beast, you're thinking of kingdom. This is, this is why politics are exactly what the evil one wants to shove down your throat, and why you must fight tooth and nail to make the kingdom great again. I don't care who you voted for, what you think about those policies. Those are common grace, human flourishing issues, irrespective of what I'm talking about right now. You must make the kingdom great again. And I would be failing you as one of your pastors if I did not fight for that. And I took enough flack when I removed the American flag from this stage I was slaughtered in emails, in letters. I was called a socialist. I was called a communist. Brothers and sisters, I love this country deeply. But I cannot in any way as a pastor have you not see your allegiance first to the cross. And if I'm going to go down over that and you're going to want to bring in somebody that wants to have an American first pastor and kingdom of God second, then bring in a different pastor. But I would not be doing my job if I didn't tell you the kingdom of God is first. I would not be doing my job. I just wouldn't. And yet I with you will go out on the 4th of July and celebrate a nation that I with all of you are so thankful for. And I with you 
On Tuesdays in November, we'll go and vote seeking common good and human flourishing with the best candidate possible. And I will, you will, with you, will fight for truth regarding the genocide of our young that is shameful on our country. I will fight for that. I will speak to truth. I will let the truth of the Bible be made known in how I vote and how I speak. But as a pastor, I have to have a bit of a prophetic role. I have to. And brothers and sisters, you and I have been swindled for a couple generations. And we got to fight for that back. Oh, other countries have too. Barman Declaration in Germany. Churches wrote up against this guy named Hitler. You ever read the Barman Declaration? You should read it. Hitler rose up, swooned the people like crazy. Pastors were ousted out of churches, and the German state put in who they wanted to put in. And pastors, like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, were killed for it. Good men, martyrs who Revelation say cry out to what true allegiance is. You think it only happens in Germany? <laughs> you think? Oh, by the way, you think in Germany it was obvious? It's where everybody was at. It, it, was, it was the topic of the day. That was it. Everybody was on board. Everybody bought in. That's why this is so scary. Because it's not just in the future. It's right now. What about the number 666? Let me give you two things. First, if the number refers to a particular individual, I think there is, I think there is one that could be argued. Who is the 666? In the ancient world, names had numerical value. Like Matthew 1 is an example of this, right? There's three, in the genealogy of Jesus, there's 14 names, 14 names, 14 names. The number 14, it, this is called gematria, right? So it's a little nerdy, but stick with it because we're short on time. The number 14 is the numerical value of the name of King David. And three sets of 14, where do you see three sets of th- a set of three? Like Isaiah 6, holy, holy, holy. So when Matthew is an, an introducing Jesus, the first book in the New Testament, he's shouting, the king is here three times. How beautiful is that? Yet modern readers, we read that and we don't even know there were four, three sets of 14. The name of Nero, who was the Roman Caesar in the first century, adds up to the number 666. So what seems more likely? Saddam Hussein? Joe Biden? Somebody in Saudi Arabia? Or somebody right around the time the author's writing? Again, symbolic, meaning pick a human king, watch out. Human kings will want you to love their human kingdom first. Doesn't matter who the king is. You have to love God first. So, Hotel rooms don't have 666. People don't want 666. Like they've been running from a number that has absolutely, you know, the number 666 has been ripped off in the history of Christendom. Nothing to do with anything demonic or satanic. It literally was a name in a form of code. Welcome to Revelation. It could also just be symbolically an anti-777. Seven represents God. Six represents less than God. So the, 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 the very mention of the mark, again, three times for emphasis, is just saying, whoever's going to want your allegiance, guess what? They are not worthy. They're just not worthy. See them for what they are. Look at every human king and say, you're a six. I worship a seven. You're a six. I worship a seven. I worship the seven, seven, seven. Holy, holy, holy. Do you see how that's insight and not an item? Do you see how that's a lens and not a code? So how are we to, let, let me end with this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be four minutes again today, late. Pat Anderson, I blame you. All right, how are we supposed to understand the mark of the beast? When we read Revelation like a code, a crystal ball, a map, or one-to-one correspondence, we try to pin the tail on the donkey. And guess what? We don't even hold it. We're not even, we don't even have a tail. When we read Revelation like a lens or a compass... We look for orientation and insight. So let me give it to you. This passage is telling Christians to navigate their world by avoiding allegiance to any one political leader. 
Did you hear that? I don't need to make any application. There is never a political leader to whom you give full political allegiance. And if you have a question about that, just go ahead and read the letter to the seven churches in the first few chapters of Revelation and see how Jesus speaks to Christian churches who don't quite get it. Remember, rather than the predictive approach, this is called the pastoral prophetic. Pastoral means comfort. Prophetic means challenge. We aren't going to have an American flag on the stage unless the elders outvoted me on that. I'm not, I'm, there's no, I'm not a CEO. But my vote would be we do not have a flag on the stage. I love a flag on the outside. I will be completely American in every way as a common grace institution. But my allegiance is to the kingdom of God first. Our worship is to Jesus Christ first. I don't want to sing God Bless America in a corporate worship service, even though I believe we've been blessed by God. But I don't want to sing it in this room because this is an embassy. Just like I didn't have to see a Scottish flag when I was in the embassy in Edinburgh. Why? Because I was on a, technically speaking, that was American soil. When you walk in these doors, you should be reminded. You get reprieve for one minute from all the allure of human kingdoms. And you come and you say, Lord, you are the king. You get my full allegiance. And then you go the rest of your week trying to stay the course. And then you're exhausted after six days. And you come back on Sunday, the Lord's Day. You come back and you are the king of this world. No matter what they do to me, no matter what they do to this land, you get my allegiance. Then you understand Revelation. And if you're looking for the beast and not looking for that, then you've totally misunderstood this book. We should not be a, a, a entrenched in any human kingdom so much that we fail to give full allegiance to the kingdom of God. Make the kingdom great again. Let it be this generation that makes that switch. Let it not have to be your children and grandchildren that have to deal with that and make the switch. The same way that right now, your parents and grandparents or the pastors that they had focused too little on the kingdom of God and, and theology as a whole, and you're paying for it. Don't do that to your kids. Pass on what you received from the word of God. This passage, the Mark of the Beast, warns Christians by explaining that people made in the image of God are actually created for worship. It is not, here's this, it's not if a person worships, it's who they worship. Like the question is not if you worship, it's who. For that reason, we must work hard to guard our allegiance and worship and to see with theological foresight and insight how the world, people, and institutions will seek to guide our devotion to things less than Christ. You are literally being given propaganda for human kingdoms 24-7. What you read what you watch on TV, all those things are trying to disciple you. And if they don't bring up Christ, then they make something else like Christ. Brothers and sisters, our news channels do this all the time. They have to create, they have to create Christ and Antichrists. So who's the Christ on CNN and who's the Antichrist? Who's the Christ on Fox News? And who's the Antichrist? If it isn't dealing with God as the main character, then it's giving it to human beings. And you're being discipled that way. And slowly but surely, that's where your allegiance goes. This passage directs Christians to aim for Christ, not with speculative foresight, but theological insight. By the way, the whole topic of the Antichrist, and everyone's looking for one individual antichrist. If you want evidence outside of Revelation that this book was to be read as a lens, not a code, 2 John, 2 John, chapter 2, verse 18. Children, it is the last hour. By the way, that's not talking about the future. It's talking about like 2,000 years ago. It is the last hour. And as you have heard, that antichrist is coming. So now many antichrists have come. Did you hear that? So the moment you think of an antichrist as singular, go to 2 John 2.18 and realize there's always been somebody trying to get you to love something other than Christ. So quit looking at Saddam Hussein, the guy on the cover of the book, or some political leader now. I wonder if it's the guy in Iraq or Iran. Or... No, 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 no. There's always been antichrists. Revelation exhorts us to gird our loins. That's Bible talk. 
for suffering and persecution. Have you? Are you ready to die for Christ? If you're going to die for Christ, by the way, you are totally focused on him. Like he is your allegiance. The same way instinctively something's coming at you in front of your kid and you jump in front of it. It's not like you're like, this is a tough call. I like my body. Like your little baby's sitting there and it's coming. There, my little boy Jacob, who could now easily take this hit himself, was standing here and a huge guy was falling backwards. This was like he was two years old. And I literally slammed my shoulder into that man. I did not care about being polite. I knocked that guy on his keys. Because my little boy was right here. He was not going down. Sorry, sir, I'll help you up, but I had a two-year-old. But that's because my allegiance was so focused that it was instinct. Where is ours? And what do we have to do to catechize our hearts instinctively so that it's so Christ? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, common good, human flourishing, human kingdom, absolutely Christ. Christ, you're my allegiance. I pledge allegiance to you. John is not trying to give Christians, let me end with this. John is not trying to give Christians in moments of crisis riddles. Can I say that to you? He's not giving riddles. He's not giving riddles. So, you're, so the world's around you collapsing. Let me tell you this, roses are red. That's not what he's doing. He's not giving riddles that you need to interpret. He's giving you revelation. He's revealing about what you're facing, who is in charge, and why you will have to suffer for the worship and the glory of God. Revelation is not simply predicting the future, brothers and sisters. It is offering pastoral prophetic guidance, comfort, and challenge to the people of God. If you got questions, email me. But I just got fired because I'm late. Right, so Jerry McKenzie's teaching next week. See you next time.